Welcome to the Frontline Founders Podcast. Today, our guest is Rylan Hamilton, the co-founder and co-CEO of Six River Systems. Rylan is responsible for all operations, engineering, manufacturing, supply chain, and corporate functions at Six River. Rylan's also working on scaling the organization and making sure customers are highly successful. Prior to Six River, Rylan was a member of the leadership team at Kiva, now Amazon Robotics, and led design and deployment organizations at Kiva and at Amazon. Rylan is a U.S. Navy veteran and holds an undergrad degree in applied math from Harvard and an MBA with distinction from Harvard Business School. Rylan, welcome to the Frontline Founders podcast. This is a mini-series to showcase military veterans who have gone on to success as founders and builders of technology companies. Rennie, thanks for having me. We're going to dig into your your military background. We're going to loop back to to your post-military pre-Six River time and then and then work through Six River Systems and and the the present and future there. As we start though, before we go back into the the service time would you tell us what you do today as the co-CEO of Six River Systems in your own words? Well, Rennie, great to be here. Um, that seems like a simple question, but it ends up being complicated because my job ends up changing like every six months. So the answer I would have given you six months is very different to, to, uh, than today. But if you ask me, what do I do in Q2? Uh, and I was thinking about this, like I think there are probably three things I do. The first is... Um, really spending a lot of time thinking about the vision of the company and where we want to take it for the next five or 10 years. Not something that I uh, was doing when we were VC backed and we had to raise money every 18 months. But now that we can have a longer term view and especially at our company size, it's really important to kind of refresh where we want to take the company and kind of zoom out. And then you need to zoom in again and saying, all right, now that we have an idea of where we want to take the company, what do we want to do over the next six, 12 or 18 months? So I think that's a big part of my job today. Um, the second piece is we have a core value. It's to build a wicked awesome team. And I think that matters even more now than it uh, than it ever has. And when I say build a wicked awesome team, it's all about employee retention, engagement, and then recruiting. And so like, we're now at the point that day-to-day, there's not much that I do to like help you know with the tactical things that happen in our company, but I need to make sure that we have the right people in place and continue to invest in them. Because I think one of our advantages of being at our size versus bigger companies is that we're really sort of a founder-led company that is really passionate about what we're building. And you just don't get that at bigger companies or most bigger companies. And then the third kind of category is usually like two to three projects that I kind of choose and I kind of spearhead and push, usually cross-functional. They change all the time, but they're just things that like I can kind of see through the fog and be like, you know what, we need to do a better job in those those different areas. And so it's not like on our OKRs or anything, but I'm like, if we don't fix it, people are going to get frustrated. We're just not as efficient. So, um, but obviously... That answer that I just gave to you would have been very different if you asked me about what I what my job was in 2020. Right, and and you picked up on some really, or there, there were some really interesting themes there that, you know, post acquisition and and running it is different than when you're on the the fundraising treadmill, which which I think is is something that many tech founders um, have to have to work through what ones that choose to to, to be venture backed. Um, but before we head into a little bit on your earlier life in military service, could you could you just help orient us, Rylan, as to 
what Six River Systems does, what the company actually does? Six River, we're a leading fulfillment solution provider. And so what does that mean? I'll unpack it a little. Um, we help our customers run small to medium-sized fulfillment operations, and we help them do it more efficiently. The product that we sell to them is a combination of warehouse automation and software. Um, the reason we started this company back in 2015 is we saw there was a better way to automate these small to medium-sized warehouses uh, with kind of mobile robotics and software. And we tried to disrupt and say, we can do a better job than you know picking with carts and you don't have to invest as much money and start to bolt down conveyors and other types of automation. And that was our sweet spot where we focus. Today, we do a lot more and we kind of talk about, you know, what we call wall-to-wall -wall fulfillment and helping our customers within the entire operation and not just necessarily with the, the picking automation that we used to do when we started the company. Rylan, thanks for explaining what Six River Systems does and how it's evolved from several years ago to today in terms of what Six River can do, what, what it does for its customers. Let's, let's trace it back a bit here. Would love to hear briefly about growing up and then really just, just tie that into the decision to join the Navy to become a Navy officer, uh, what, what that decision-making process was like. So growing up, I never had any vision or thought that I'd ever join uh, sort of the military. Um, I will say that I've always had a love for the ocean, and I was a sailing counselor for one summer, and I you know raced uh, on Buzzards Bay, which I, I'm you know doing this video conference from Boston, which is my hometown, but it's about an hour and a half away, and I've always just loved being on the water. But at some point, I knew I needed to get a real job. So while I was in college, I actually had uh, internships during the summer. And I kind of did like the typical internships. I did consulting. I did investment banking in New York. And I just really couldn't find my passion. Um, and, you know, uh, I went to my father at the time and I said, you know, I don't like these jobs. But um, I said, you know, I'm actually really think about joining the Navy. And he said, that's a bad idea. And I said, well, why is that a bad idea? He's like, oh, if you talk to all my friends from college who joined the Navy, they'll tell you it's a bad idea too. I said, I would love to talk to your friends and just find out what their experience was like. And so I started calling up everyone uh, that I knew who had served. And they all said, what a wonderful time, what a great experience they had when they're in the Navy, got to sail around the world, do port visits. They have great friends that they still keep in touch with. And I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. And... Uh, Actually, so my birth father passed away when I was little, uh, not from his service, but uh, he was actually in, he went to Annapolis. He was a submariner. He actually interviewed with Admiral Rickover, which I, I didn't know at the time, but it's pretty cool. And then I had two uncles who were in the Navy and then a grandfather who's in the Navy in World War II. And so I had all this, these people tell me what a great experience. I had this family kind of history and I went back to my adoptive father and I said, I'm going to join the Navy. And he kind of begrudgingly said, all right, all right. Um, and it definitely wasn't obvious at the time. Um, because I was like, all right, I'm going to spend four plus years in the Navy. I don't even know what it's like to have like duty or whatever. I hear about these things where you need to sometimes go in on the weekend. You know, I haven't even been on a Navy ship, but I said, you know what? Like, I'm just going to take a bet and hopefully it'll work out because it seems like this is what I want to do. And I didn't have any other sort of plan B or better option. Uh, and it ended up being like one of the best decisions I ever made. The way I actually um, became an officer is I joined officer cannon school. So I did four years at college. Uh, and then it was around junior and senior year that I decided I wanted to join the Navy. And so uh, rather than doing ROTC or you know being in a service academy, I went to officer cannon school. Uh, and I ended up showing up Pensacola, Florida, I think in the summer of 2002. 
Right. And, 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 and the, the timing there is, is interesting as well. And thanks for your candor about some of the reasoning why to do it. You went to a extraordinarily um, competitive college, Harvard, where a lot of people do go to banking and consulting. As you said, you, you tried those paths in the, in the summers of college and determined that was not you know, your, your, your heart wasn't in it at, at, at that time, but can you also frame for us the, the timeline here, Ryland? So this is, this is, you know, shortly before, after nine 11, which was a defining event for our overall generation, as well as for, for Americans now nearly, nearly 20 years ago, but did, did that play into your, decision-making process at all? Or was, was that, um, what, what, was it less one of the big reasons you chose to serve? Yeah, was, I definitely think it was part of the decision-making. I think my peer group at the time, there were probably a lot more people who ended up serving, whether coming right out of college or a couple of years later and deciding to join than kind of if you rewind and look at kind of that, the uh, people who graduated five years earlier. Um, but I would say like, one of the things too is like, I don't think it was obvious to me at the time, um, but I just, I love my experience in the Navy. I actually thought about spending the next 20 years and kind of maybe making that a career. If I hadn't gotten married, I might've done that um, because it was just, it was a combination of like, I think 9-11 might've kind of sparked the idea of a lot of us to say like, what is it actually, like, where's the world going? Things are spinning. Like the traditional jobs that people would take didn't seem fulfilling anymore. Um, but on top of that, like being in the Navy, I loved being on the ocean. I just loved it. Like I just standing at bridge watch, even if it was the middle of the night and just being and looking at the stars and, and talking to people or navigating around other ships or getting on the, um, the radio and talking to other ships. Like it's just, it was amazing. The other great thing about the Navy. Um, and then if I talked to fellow Marines who had to spend the nights sleeping in a ditch, we'd complain when our email went down, but it's actually like running a business. Like, and we can talk more about kind of the jobs that I had, but like my first job, I was an electrical officer. So I basically had to run a business, keeping all of the lights on. Right. And, and Ryland briefly, and these are going to be great parallels, how the Navy, how your experience as a Navy officer was similar and maybe helped prepare you for, for business broadly, small business entrepreneurship. That said, could we quickly frame what your military occupational, especially your, your MOS, you know, talk about surface warfare broadly, and, and then would love to transition right into what some of your actual jobs were as a Navy officer. So when I graduated from officer candidate school, I became a surface warfare officer. Surface being you're on the surface of the ocean, not underwater like a submariner. So uh, always on a ship. And remember, ships carry boats, so I was never on a boat. Um, and I was, you know, my first kind of um, ship was the USS Ponce. I met it in the Persian Gulf just before Operation Iraqi Freedom really started. And we were unloading all the Marines into Kuwait and Iraq. And then we later recovered them and all their equipment. And so I was an electrical officer. So my day job was an electrical officer, keep the lights on. And then, you know, between my day job, I was also a bridge officer. So driving the ship all around and conducting operations. And then my second ship was the USS Jarrett, which is a frigate. Um, I was a navigator on that ship. I was also the admin officer, the legal officer. So it kind of wore many hats. Uh, <laughs> and I met that ship actually in Mayport, Florida, 
Uh, it was st stationed out of San Diego, but we did operations both in the Caribbean and Eastern Pacific, basically hunting, finding anyone who was doing sort of illegal drug activity and trying to, you know, uh, stow it away in a fishing boat or a fast speed boat or something. So we just kind of a joint operation with the Coast Guard and other intelligence agencies. Right. That's a that that's a terrific background. And f j just for 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 those who have less. Um, naval experience what what are the size just in terms of number of people that are on those sorts of ships on which you served during your active duty time yeah so if, if anyone googles hopefully i'm directionally right but the ponce was an amphibious transport ship had about 400 sailors i think it could carry up to 800 marines and all their equipment whether it's helicopters or amphibious assault vehicles or you know, hummers or jeeps or you know all the kind of utility trucks that they would have uh, about 450 feet long. So it was a significant ship. I think it took about half a mile to stop. So um, it was uh, a big beast that was out there. What was really cool about that ship is it actually be a floating base out wherever you were. So two miles offshore, you could basically have this base where you could have all the command and control uh, and kind of to help all the you know, Marines on shore. And then the second ship, the, uh, the Jarrett was a frigate. So we didn't carry Marines around. Um, it's about 220 sailors on board. Uh, I think of a little over 200 feet. It was basically a cheaper cruiser destroyer. So rather than having a really fast uh, warship with two screws and a bunch of missiles, it only had. It used to have one <laughs> missile, and then you got rid of it. And it had one screw, so it was kind of like the Honda Civic of the U.S. Navy. Uh, and it would do like submarine warfare, so hunting for submarines, or it'd do kind of you know escorting ships or anything else. So you could have a lot more frigates for the cost of a destroyer. But what was fun about that is a small ship, and we could go all all around. Got it. Great. Well, Ryland, can you talk to us about? What um, and 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 we'll hopefully loop back around to to some of the Navy time and and how that applies yeah. to to entrepreneurship and small business. That that said, you mentioned that while the decision to join the Navy was you you didn't necessarily know what you were getting into. You ended up truly loving that time, both both being a, a part of the military, the Navy, a Navy officer, as well as being. On, on the ocean, being on the water. When you were making the decision to transition out of the Navy, what was that like as you as you transitioned away? Were you certain about what to do next? You mentioned earlier you thought about staying in for you know the full 20 plus years. How did you think about um, navigating uh, out of the Navy? So um, I actually got married to my college sweetheart while I was in the Navy. And at that point, I realized that if I wanted to start a family, it's just going to be really hard with the demands of kind of being, you know, a naval officer and kind of raising a f family. But I didn't know what I wanted to do next. Um, but what's great is, and uh, I actually think for many officers with four plus years, getting an MBA is a great transition to figure out what you want to do. Because I remember talking to companies uh, when I was getting out of the Navy and I was looking to fill some time between, you know, getting out of the Navy and starting business school. And like, no one knew what to do with me. They're like, that's great. Like, you know, you're 27, you have all this ex leadership experience, but I can't put you as a manager of some group if you don't know the difference between like product and marketing. I was like, I don't really know the difference. I don't, you know. And so um, 
I didn't know what I wanted to do, but like, so actually I went to Harvard Business School and they say the three M's of Harvard Business School are Mormon, McKinsey, and military. And it was just a great experience to learn as much as I could. I actually had two kids while I was at business school. So all I did is I like was, uh, it was great to raise a family and I studied and that's all I did at business school. I had no, no time for like parties or anything. I said, I need to get a real job after this. There's now even more pressure because I have a bigger family and I don't know what I'm going to do after I get out. But I used those two years to kind of explore. And those same recruiters who talked to when I was getting out of the Navy who didn't know what to do with me knew exactly what kind of roles I could uh, you know, apply for as I was getting out of Harvard Business School. Yeah, that, that's terrific. And, and the experiences and capabilities you did have from your time in the Navy were so valuable. But getting that general business grounding, it sounds like, added a ton of, a ton of value to you um, a, as well. When you left Harvard Business School, though, um, from from what I recall, you didn't necessarily take the management, consulting, banking, more traditional path that I, being a military officer who went to business school as well, found that many of, of my classmates went to those routes to sort of continue the the, the basic grounding and, and, and learning before now many of them have transitioned to more entrepreneurial or small business ownership pursuits. But um, you've been you've been in in the tech world for for a fairly long time. What were those first couple of years out of business school like for you, Rylan? I always thought that when I was going to get out of business school, I was going to have a job for like like in the next five years because I have like two jobs or something like that. Um, and I ended up having like three jobs in like three years or something crazy like that, that I just never would have expected. But I did know getting out of business school, I knew what like a great job was. Like when I was in the Navy and I would get up, I would be like, not every day I was super excited to go to work, but I never regret, like, I didn't have to pull myself out and say like, oh, I guess I got to go into work. Like I just like, it was a great group of people that I got to work with. When I, again, started talking to, you know, all the traditional opportunities that someone coming out of business school uh, would pursue. And I talked to the recruiter, like I couldn't find anything that I was really excited about. And I took a class, um, my second year of business school called entrepreneurial finance. And I said, oh, startups, that sounds really interesting. And I ended up meeting this really exciting entrepreneur named Leah. And she started a company, it was called Run My Errand, and it eventually became TaskRabbit. And she showed me that, and again, this was 2009 when it wasn't a great year to graduate. Um, oil was at like 100 or Right 200. after the financial crisis, right? The housing bubble, oil was always going to be at $200 a barrel. It was a little bit like, I was like, oof. And so she created this app where she showed me that you could basically get your dry cleaning picked up for $7. And you basically would say, I'm willing to pay $7. It would send out this task to like 20 different errand runners in your neighborhood using smartphones because like the iPhone was just coming out. And we just kind of, you know, we're all accustomed to using like Blackberries and checking ESPN on this cool little small screen. I was like, wow, this seems like a really cool opportunity. And tech sounds exciting. Way more, like I can get behind this. This seems like there's something here that using smartphones to do this like service networking or whatever, there's got to be something there. So I spent the summer with Leah. Um, and then I realized how hard these startups are, are, especially business to consumer. And one of the light bulb moments was I remember the summer of 2007. So just graduated from business school. And we got on the front page of the Boston Globe, which is like the major newspaper in the Boston area, on the business section, it was all about 
TaskRabbit and how cool an opportunity. I was like, we've made it. Like everyone's going to sign up for the service. They're going to realize how amazing it is. We're going to go raise a big round because we'd only raised like $100,000 plus. And it was like two of us full-time plus some interns and some consultants. And when we saw the website, we saw all the traffic go up and then we saw all the traffic go down and no one was coming back. And I was like, crap, this is going to be really, really hard because to, to that point, we'd literally been in like downtown Boston hand, handing out flyers, trying to convince people to go join the service. And if you get a front page Boston Globe business section article that goes to like hundreds of thousands of people, I'm like, I don't know how we're going to build this thing up again. And Leah ended up moving the business to California. Uh, and so then I said, all right, I need to find, you know, I wasn't going to move to California. And so I ended up joining a larger company um, called Vistaprint, which wasn't a startup at that point, but was like a fully integrated e-commerce company where I learned a lot. Because at that point, I was a little bit nervous and said, I don't want to be that person with a resume that no one knows what to do with me. I don't want to be the person they have four years in the Navy, they've got an MBA, but then they have startup, 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 startup that no one knows about. And I was like, that got, made me a little bit nervous. So joining Vistaprint was joining like a real company that was public and I could actually learn how real companies worked. But, but still in heavy growth mode, right? I mean, Vistaprint was a is is to this day but certainly 10 years ago was still what was was in in heavy growth mode correct it was heavy growth mode and they were hiring amazing employees so some of the people that were in my same group group and in, in the marketing department one of them was jason robbins and so he started DraftKings. another is mary biggins and she started a couple of different companies she was like a vp of marketing at betterment she was a co-founder at ClassPass and MealPass. So just like the talent was amazing there because they're growing so quickly and they just hired really smart and ambitious people who are kind of young and looking to prove themselves. So it was a great experience and I learned a lot. I also learned a lot about what it's like to run like a, you know an e-commerce company and how that's driven by metrics and how these were different than the, kind of these offline companies. You know, what Vistaprint does is actually sell business cards and marketing material to small businesses. And because they're able to centralize all the manufacturing, they can make these business cards for a fraction of what any local printing shop could do and provide all their kind of customization online. So it was an amazing business model and it really got me into tech. Um, but talking about another startup. So then I wasn't at that point ready to go back to like early day startup. But uh, one of my classmates, who was also uh, a veteran, Dave Minichello, who served in the Air Force and went to Harvard Business School, he told me about this company called Kiva Systems. Like, Dave, I know about Kiva Systems. I applied there out of graduate school, and I didn't get a job. <laughs> it's like, well, we've grown a little. I have the right opportunity for you. And it's like, it's to be a program manager. And what Kiva does and did at that time is they had this amazing automations uh, system for all these fast-growing kind of um, you know, retailers, including ones that did uh, e-commerce, and it used these mobile robots that would move around these shelving units and get rid of all the walking and increase productivity by three to four X. And it, when you saw that like online, you're like, this is the future. Now, I didn't know there were other automation options at the time. I had no clue like why Kiva would be better than anything else. But I said, this thing is awesome. I want to go join. And I joined as a program manager with no background in supply chain, robotics, program management, whatever. But luckily, Dave was right. It wasn't rocket science. Right. And and talk a little bit about that. D Dave is now a well-known fixture in the tech ecosystem, being a, a general partner at, at GV or Google Ventures, and served in, in the military, the Air Force Special Operations Units. That you had a, um, a, a peer who was already in place who may have known that your military experience 
you could figure things out, you could be creative, you had good endurance, you know, what do, do you attribute having a military person in tech be able to to place you or take a, a bit of a chance on you to some parts of you getting the job at Kiva or or not? Just here thinking for those of our listeners who are uh, active duty military or or recently separated and are now veterans thinking about where to look at at tech companies, there aren't there aren't a whole there aren't a ton of military veterans who are um, super successful founders and builders. Um, you certainly, Rylan, are, are are one of them with everything you've achieved. But you know, may, maybe pause for a minute and just talk about uh, whether it's Dave specifically or or ha- having s- someone like that at a company where you could get an opportunity. Dave, I think recognized that. Uh, a military background brought a lot of extra stuff that most people had never experienced. It could really help contribute to a high growth company. So what does that mean? Like, and I think I probably have a much better perspective 10 years after joining Kiva than I did at the time. Uh, but someone recently used a term this year called chaos pilot. And if you Google search chaos pilot in Harvard business review, there's an article about it, but it's about leading and executing in unfamiliar territory. And that is essential at most fast-growing, high-growth like startups. Like there is no playbook that's written for you, and especially one that's doing the hardware and the software and warehouse automation in a space that no one's ever done this stuff before. Like, what do you do when the system like falls apart or you have shelving and it's falling over or whatever? Like, you just need to say, all right, I've got a problem, I've got a solution, problem, solution, problem, solution. Like, you can never say I have a problem and I don't know what to do. And that's what you have to do in the, like, in the military. You've, you have a problem, you have to have a solution or bad things will happen. And you're trained to do that. And you're trained to lead through like uncertainty. And it's still something that I actually enjoy today is like operating in the gray. Whereas I think some people like, especially some engineers like to live in a very like clear world and to know, like, tell me what the requirements are and what I need to go build to make someone successful. And so um, as a program manager working directly with our customers, I'd have to deal with just a ton of chaos. Uh, and that's just the truth that exists at many startups. Um, the second piece would I think be about resilience and perseverance. When you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean and something's broke, you have to fix it. You never give up. Like I would be in the middle of the ocean and started with like the electrical division. We'd have our steamship generators go down. We'd have the lights of the entire ship go off and the emergency gen- generators come up. Like it was, there's a lot of stuff that happened, but I could never go to the captain and be like, I give up. Like you could never give up. And sometimes that would mean staying up through the night with, you know, um, one of your electrical officers uh, or petty officers and just saying like, I can't give up. I'm probably not contributing much by watching you do this repair, but if you need help at any moment, like I'm here and I'll go make sure you have help. I'll go wake someone up or whatever, but I'm not going to give up and I'm going to go fix this. And that's like, I I don't think many other um, places give you that sort of perseverance or resilience uh, because at most other companies, it's 5 p.m. I'm going home for the night. I guess we can always fix it tomorrow. I I don't mean to take you off track. I was just going to ask quickly because I think this is a, misconception that that some people may have about military service, which is that there is a playbook, that there's all this military doctrine and you just follow it, or that there's strict hierarchy. And for those who served as small unit leaders early in their career, it's it's obvious and second nature that that's not true in practice. And you have to, as you said, problem, solution, problem, solution. But 
Um, could you talk about that, you know, my perception of that being a misconception of military service? It's true and false. Like in some ways, um, the military is all about scale. And so when you're in a high growth startup, you're saying, how can I make this something that we can scale? And you can scale through people, processes, or technology. Generally, the military mm. will scale through people and processes. They're not always great at the technology. Um, so uh, there's a lot of things that are written down for like the standard, like when this happens, do this. But there are a lot of curveballs that get thrown at you. Um, you know, in terms of things breaking, not knowing what to do. I mean, I can remember we lost steering going to the port of Norfolk. And like, what do you do when you lose steering? Like, I mean, you're just not like, it's a little bit chaotic. Like, all right, let's slow down the ship and let's call the tug and we'll be okay. Like, but we have a tug, but you just like, that's not something that like there's, you don't bring out the manual and say, when I lose steering next to the port, what do I do? Or I remember right. I had a man, also going to Norfolk, I had a man overboard, just fall out of the hatch. Like, and what do you do? Like normally in a man overboard, you'd actually turn around the ship. You can't turn around the ship when you're in the channel, you're going to go aground. <laughs> so that it's just like stuff like that happened more often than you'd ever think. And so <laughs> while there was a lot of structure and things written down because you did have a lot of people like myself or a junior officer who had never been on a ship. And all of a sudden the first time you're on a ship is in the middle of the Persian Gulf. Well, you need to write things down. And that's how you kind of like learn the kind of like the basics. But once you're beyond the basics, that's when you need to be able to deal with like the chaos that just is going to happen. That's a great way to, to, to frame it and, and to add that, that color to it. Thank you. Ryland, we, we've talked about your transition out of the Navy to, to business school, the startups and growth companies at which you worked, Kiva, which, which was acquired by Amazon. So you had worked as a, as a executive, uh, you know, not, not, not a founder or the senior person on the team, but, but, at Kiva, Let, let's transition to, to Six River Systems. Why did you choose to become a founder to partner with, with others and, and start this company? And as you talk about that, that first, the, those early days, would love to hear also about geographic location. You, you built this in Boston, I believe. You, you you took venture funding be, because I think of the the scale of what you needed to achieve. But talk talk to us about those early days at, at Six River Systems. Yeah, um, so I left Kiva, which became Amazon Robotics in 2015, because the next logical step would have been in my career would have been to move to Seattle, and I wasn't ready to move to Seattle. So I actually quickly joined a tech company out of San Francisco, and after three months, I just realized it wasn't the right fit. I wasn't happy. I wasn't excited to get out of bed. I wasn't ready to move my family to San Francisco. And so then I quit my job, which my dad again said, don't quit your job because if you quit your job, it's really hard to get another job. And I just used that time to explore. And I said, what else is out there? And I wasn't looking to start a company, but when I looked into the you know other startups doing like warehouse automation or robotics, I started to see that the technology had evolved a lot from when Kivo started in 2003. And that there's some opportunity here, but it wasn't clear to me what it was. Um, and I then spent some time and I found another co-founder, Jerome Dubois, who had all, I'd also worked with at Kiva. And he was kind of doing the same thing. And then at some point in the spring of 2015, we said, it seems like there's a really big opportunity that's out there. Um, it's probably better, like we'd convinced ourselves that rather than join other companies, and we both had opportunities, we might as well try to start something ourselves. And we gave ourselves six months and we said, we're not going to pay ourselves any salary. And if nothing happens after six months, 
like no harm, no foul. But if we're able to start something, then this could be really interesting. And so uh, we ended up finding another technical co-founder and raising it a little bit of a pre-seed. And then we were off from there and we just kind of kept like building the company and thinking about like, what's the next milestone that we need to do to raise more money to go build this company. Right. And, and, and just to key in there for a second, you said that you and Jerome, with whom you had worked at, at, at Kiva, thought about this at first as let's take six months, let's start small and figured it out and figure it out. How, how closely or not did you know each other? How did you build up that mutual trust from the outside? It looks like mostly straight up uh, for, for Six River, but I'm sure there were you know uh, ups and downs on that journey. But um, how did you think about that, that founding team and, and kind of testing and iterating together into what uh, has become a, a, a very successful company, Rylan? So it wasn't obvious how, how things kind of unfolded, but I think with Jerome, um, we just started to build stuff. And when I say build, it's not necessarily like engineering, like go build robots, but we started to spend a lot of time around his dining room table. And we started to take some of the lessons and techniques we'd use, you know, we learned at Amazon. We started to write white papers and press releases and other things and said like, what would it take to convince ourselves that there's something here? We started to talk to people in our network. We started to talk to potential customers. And then we just, over time, you know, we had to figure out all the founding documents and work with lawyers and choose counsel, all of that. And going through those motions of kind of like starting to build a company, it became very clear, you know, how Jerome and Rylan kind of worked together. Because, you know, we knew each other at Kiva, but we didn't work like closely together like we did at Six River. And so by the summer, it was clear that there was something here. We thought about the early product, what it would look like, the milestones to get there. And so we had a lot more confidence, like three months into this. Um, that there's something there and that we should really, you know, I'd actually quit my job. Jerome hadn't quit his job uh, yet, but like, you know, we both shook hands and said, we're going to go do this. And take us through the, from initially when you were going after small and medium-sized companies, it it sounds like for for automation, um, how did that vision evolve? And talk about the decision to, uh, partner merge into be part of Shopify. Yeah. So when we first started, um, I think especially when you're early at a startup, um, you want to be able to iterate a lot. We we had a general vision of what we wanted to do, but what we were thinking about in 2015, and then if you fast forward like nine months to 2016, we really learned a lot because we're thinking about the problem all the time. And the concept of how it evolved, it changed over time. We never really pivoted, but it definitely, like, it took us nine months to kind of figure out, like, what does the initial version look like? We got a lot of feedback from customers. And then at that point, you know, um, you know, uh, five years later, we were acquired by Shopify, but we literally just had to go build the company. So we raised a pre-seed, seed, uh, series A, series B. So we raised around $45 million uh, over that time. But it was always about, like, you know, the initial days was like, just get a system, not one robot that can actually work in a customer's warehouse without us having to babysit and have them use it like Monday through Friday, every day to get the jobs out uh, the, uh, the door. And that was really hard. You know, that took us um, almost two years to get to that point. But once we got to that point, it was less about like, do you have product market fit in our our minds is like we need to continue to show that we can grow the company and that the growth was always measured in bookings and revenue and then as we were able to increase bookings and revenue the value of the company went up and um, we were able to raise more money and if we couldn't you know 
you know, uh, always increase revenue and increase valuation, it's kind of a tough game to play when you're trying to build a startup, but we were able to do that. Um, at some point, I think, you know, a couple of years in, after we were kind of like past that stage of like, all right, the system works barely, but, you know, this is something that I think we can sell multiple different times. Um, we probably took a step back and some of the best advice we got from you know people that were hiring our leadership team is said, you've got this great big vision of what you want to go build. Can you write that down? Because that doesn't scale if it's always in your head and you're telling people during during the interview process. And we talked about building this global fulfillment network and you could connect all these warehouses and sell the technology and make our customers super successful. Well, what happened is Shopify announced the Shopify fulfillment network in the summer of 2019. And what they realized is that fulfillment and supply chain, it's a really hard space. Um, and they'd been trying around with it. And then they met us and our two worlds kind of collided in a very good way. Uh, and we were actually just about to raise another round that helped accelerate the acquisition. It wasn't planned. But um, when we met the Shopify team, I was like, I would love to be acquired and work for another technology company. I didn't want to get bought by like a traditional incumbent in the space because the worst thing in the world would have been for us them to just put us into like a little box and said, go solve this small problem. Rather, what happens today is they say, make sure you're solving a really big problem. Make sure your current customers and future customers are super successful and we'll give you the resources to help you on that journey. And so it's less about raising money every 18 months, but it's more about creating a you know, very valuable and successful company in the fulfillment space. That's terrific. And what is the, in 2021 moment in time, what is the the size of the Six River team right now? So this year we're approaching 300 people and over 100 sites of customer sites. Terrific. And and just quickly to to pick up on a point you were making before taking these steps one by one by name or just by type of company, who were the types of companies early customers that were willing to take a chance on Six River in those early days as you refined the uh, the offering? Some of our early customers were sort of third-party logistic companies that needed automation and technology to kind of up their game, but the existing offerings or products on the market weren't doing it for them. And what has happened you know, over the last 20 years is it's like, it's not okay to have a manual operation and not use technology to kind of enable your business. And so there's such a, there's like this need to like, um, and you know, they're looking for companies that had something that passed the sniff test and we were one of them. So in the early days, these customers gave us almost a sandbox to basically test out our technology to get real-time feedback, to be able to iterate. So, but by the time our product was hardened, we were actually able to sell a solution that had like a, a payback. And so, you know, a lot of like our value proposition is we make your warehouse more efficient. So you save money. And so, you know, a lot of um, the, the value proposition for our customers is return on investment. And so it took a couple of years, people gave us the sandbox, but once we'd hardened that, you know, return on investment, we were off to the races. Great, great. And Rylan, as we, as we start to wrap up here, would love to to hear, and you've you have talked about these th throughout the interview, but just in a in a structured way, things that you learned or experienced as a service member in in the Navy that put you ahead as an entrepreneur, and also where were those areas where you had to play catch up, whether it was through 
grad school and or other companies at which you worked prior to starting Six River or more generally for service members and, and veterans to keep in mind things that they'll need to work harder, smarter, faster at to, to, to get up to a level on? So I think the things that really helped me um, in my career because of my military service was one, it was just general leadership and there's leadership and there's management. I wasn't good at being a manager or a leader early in my military career. You put me up in front of my division. I said all the wrong things. I didn't know what motivated people, but I learned over time how to connect with people. Um, that leadership helped me accelerate my career at Kiva to get on the executive team and be the youngest person there, which then allowed me to start Six River. So that just was an acceleration that once I found the right opportunity, I was able to accelerate um, pretty quickly within Kiva. And then that set me up for uh, Six River Systems. What um, people kind of transitioning from the military into the, sort of the private or civilian world won't have is you don't have industry experience. Maybe the technology is new, but you can learn a lot of this stuff. I would say like learning how to deal with chaos or to navigate in the gray or to be a good leader, like most companies actually really aren't good at training people on how to do that. Um, whereas like, you know, I think many military uh, veterans have that it's ingrained in them and learning about an industry or technologies, you can do that you know, on the nights and weekends. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, 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 those are, those are great points. Well, great, Rylan. I think we're we're just about wrapped here, and you you just shared some some great wisdom um, for a, a general audience and also for uh, military veterans in 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 particular. Any any parting words you'd like to uh, like to 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 give to veterans or, or service members who are contemplating uh, be, becoming a founder uh, that themselves as we. Uh, as we as we finish up here, Rylan. Yeah. So if you want to start a company, make sure you have some um, huge advantage over anyone else start starting that company because it is really hard. Uh, whether you have some technology advantage, industry, you've been in the industry, you can assemble the team quicker than everyone else or whatever. But just starting a company to start a company is usually a bad idea. So you know, generally, I'd um, tell people not to start a company unless you think you have some you know, huge advantage over everyone else. The other piece of advice I'd like to say just in general is that I think most mil military veterans are more than willing to help other military veterans out. So if you're trying to get into an industry, like just network with other vets, like, you know, and actually in the Boston area, I have a network of kind of vets and we all talk. I've helped other vets getting to Amazon Robotics. I've hired vets into Six River Systems. It's just, an, it's a nice network and something that, you know, I get a lot of inbounds from a lot of different people, but I don't think I've ever turned down an inbound from a vet. So use that network and don't feel um, afraid to reach out to someone or reach out to them a couple of times. Like there's the, the worst thing they can say is, is no. Odds are they'll say yes and get on a Zoom or wh where, whatever and network with them and find out about their career find out if they can, you know, give them any advice uh, on, you know, how to kind of start their career in some industry. Thanks, Rylan. Those are great. Those are great words to, to, to finish up on. And that's for, first step to becoming a, an entrepreneur and founder is do, don't be afraid to, to reach out as you, as you navigate the journey. Th thank you, Rylan, for your time. Rylan Hamilton, co-CEO, co-founder of Six River Systems. Thanks again. Thanks, Renny.